Good to be back again today with Stephen Hearn. And uh, Stephen contacted me recently and said he'd like to have a conversation about Psalm 22. And I thought that's perfect because we're coming up to Easter. So <clears throat> Stephen, I'm going to let you take it away and tell us why you want to talk about Psalm 22 and how we want to approach this. Yeah, well, um, thank you for having me on again. Um, appreciate it. And yeah, the reason that I was wanting to talk to you about Psalm 22 is I do think that it fits into the ethos or the, the understanding of this little corner and, and what it's trying to do. Um, and the and it also time, uh, ties into this season of the year with, with Easter coming up. And I think um, the reason that I want to talk specifically about this psalm is that it's not one that I'd heard a great deal about, like, having grown up in the church, I'm now 40 years old, I only learned a, like basically anything at all about this psalm in the last couple of years. So I'm not, I'm not sure how widely known it is. Now, I understand that it's part of a lot of the, the liturgies in, um, in older style churches, um, but I, I don't know how in-depth people have actually looked at it. And the reason why I think it fits into this little corner of the internet is because it lays out the pattern for the Messiah. Um, now, I think it would be best if we actually started by reading uh, reading the psalm because it's best to uh, talk about it, I think, once we've done that. So yeah. uh, if I can share my screen, um, we can follow along. Okay. Uh, so... Um, I'm reading from the uh, NET version, the New English Translation, which uh, is a translation that was done by scholars in the 90s, and it was designed to be um, it was designed to be done, uh, read in electronic formats. Um, so it has a whole bunch of footnotes in it, and so I, I find for my own personal study, this is my go-to uh, English translation at the moment. So um, I'll read I'll read out Psalm twenty two and then then we can maybe talk about um, talk about it in depth um, go into what each of the individual verses are talking about and what um, what the overall pattern of the psalm is. So uh, for the director for the music director according to the tune Morning Doe a Psalm of David, my God my God why have you abandoned me? I groan in prayer but help seems far away. My God, I cry out during the day, but you do not answer. And during the night, my prayers do not let up. You are holy. You sit as king, receiving the praises of Israel. In you, our ancestors trusted. They trusted in you, and you rescued them. To you, they cried out, and they were saved. In you, they trusted, and they were not disappointed. But I am a worm, not a man. People insult me and despise me. All who see me taunt me. They mock me and shake their heads. They say, commit yourself to the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him, for he delights in him. Yes, you are the one who brought me out of, from the womb and made me feel secure on my mother's breasts. I have been dependent on you since birth. From the time I came out of the, my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not remain far away from me, for trouble is near and I have no one to help me. Many bulls surround me, powerful bulls of Bashan, hem me in. They open their mouths to devour me, like a roaring lion that rips its prey. 
My strength drains away like water. All my bones are dislocated. My heart is like wax. It melts away inside me. The roof of my mouth is as dry as a piece of pottery. My tongue sticks to my gums. You set me in the dust of death. Yes, wild dogs surround me. A gang of evil men crowd around me. Like a lion, they pin my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies are gloating over me in triumph. They are dividing up my clothes among themselves. They are rolling dice for my guns. But you, O Lord, do not remain far away. You are my source of strength. Hurry and help me. Deliver me from the sword. Save my life from the claws of the wild dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my countrymen. In the middle of the assembly, I will praise you. Your, your loyal, you loyal followers of the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, stand in awe of him. For he did not despise or detest the suffering of the oppressed. He did not ignore him. When he cried out to him, he responded, You are the reason I offer the praise in the great assembly. I will fulfill my promises before the Lord's loyal followers. Let the oppressed eat and be filled. Let those who seek his help praise the Lord. May you live forever. Let all the people of the earth acknowledge the Lord and turn to him. Let all the nations worship you. For the Lord is king and rules over the nations. All the thriving people of the earth will join the celebration and worship. All those who are descending into the grave will bow before him, including those who cannot preserve their lives. A whole generation will serve him. They will tell the next generation about the Lord. They will come and tell about his saving deeds. They will tell a future generation what he has accomplished. So that's the that, that's uh, Psalm 22. Um, <clears throat> now, if you've been in uh, Christian circles, oh, I'll just stop sharing that for a while so your face comes back. If, you, if you've been in Christian circles for a while, you will almost certainly have heard echoes of that in what is taught um, at Easter um, uh, with Jesus on the cross. Um, but I'd, I'd like to hear your reaction to um, reading that, Karen. Do you, do you have any personal connection to, to this psalm? Well, I've been a Christian for 40 years, so it's hard for me to remember when I first <laughs> got introduced to the connections there. Um, I would say that my very first Bible was what you might call a hyperlinked Bible. It's called the Thompson Reference, Thompson Chain Reference Bible. And so every verse had um, kind of connections to a lot of other verses. And so as you're reading along, if you had any questions at all, you could glance down at these uh, footnotes and you could jump here or there. And so as I was reading through the Bible, I used to read, I used to read the Psalms. Um, there's a way of reading the Psalms where the, you, the month has usually 30 days in it and there's 150 Psalms. So you divide the Psalms up into five Psalms a day. So like on the first of the month, you would read Psalm 1, Psalm 31, Psalm 61, Psalm 91, and Psalm 121. So you read every 30th Psalm starting with the day of the month. So Psalm, on day two, you'd read 
Psalm 2, 32, 62, 92. And so I read through all the Psalms a lot. And whenever I would hit Psalm 22, of course, it just hits you right in the face that that's connected mm. to Christ on the cross. Eloi, Eloi, Lamak Sabachthani. Mm. Um, but when you were uh, I'll, today, I'll, pause I you, I'll, I'll pause you there. Um, what you are actually referencing is from Matthew um, uh, and, and from the other Gospels. Uh, Matthew 27, verse 46 at about three o'clock, Jesus shouted with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lema, Seba, I can't say that, sorry. Um, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, yeah, so, um, but it's been a while since I've read the whole psalm. And mm -hmm. I'm, as, as you were reading it, I was thinking, wow, there's a lot more in there than I remembered being in there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I can see we're going to have a lot to talk about today. <laughs> Well, well I, I think where I would like to start is what really set me on this path. So um, as, as I've told you before, I'm actually a stay-at-home father and one of my duties every day or most days is to cook dinner for the family. And so one of the things that I started doing while I was doing that was listening to um, Yale put out a series of lectures online about 15 years ago now um, which were lectures in um, in ancient literature. Um, so uh, they they had a whole series on the Old Testament, um, which was run by I believe she's Jewish, but I'm I'm not certain about that. Um, but she she presents it from a historical perspective, and then they had another one from uh, on the New Testament from a historical perspective, which was uh, done by. Uh, bald guy whose name escapes me um and it was actually in his um his historical discussion on the new testament that he said something which really triggered me to go down this rabbit hole um, about psalm 22 and it wasn't actually it wasn't that he was saying anything at all in reference to the crucifixion at the time and it wasn't that he said anything at all in reference to psalm 22 at the time he, he was speaking about something completely unrelated. And I, because I can't remember what it was that he was talking about, I can't even find a reference now short of going through all of his lectures again. But what he said was that oftentimes when the um, ancient, uh, ancient Jews were saying a psalm, what they would do is they would yell the first line of the psalm and then recite the rest of the psalm after that. And that was that was their culture and their tradition. And for some reason, at the same time, independently of that, someone pointed me towards Psalm 22. And it hit me that because I, I'd always struggled. One thing that I'd always struggled with, I'd always struggled with that verse in Matthew. Was Jesus despairing on the cross? Was he saying that God had forsaken him and abandoned him? And like, what what was going on there? What was what was actually happening? And it took until like I would have been 13, 38, 39 at the time, and I'd been in church all my life, and I'd never drawn, I'd never had anyone draw the conclusion that Jesus was on the cross, 
and he was sermonizing. That's what he was doing. And there are other parts in the uh, account of the cross where Jesus is talking to the the thieves um, to the left and right of him. He's talking to his um, mother from the cross. It when, when you when you would die on a cross, it would take a very very long time, and you could speak to people as you were dying on the cross. You were in obviously a lot of pain. Um, historically speaking, where they drove the nails through was right through a nerve, which is where the term excruciating comes from. Mm -hmm. um, you can hear that crucifixion is actually built into that word. Um, it was an extremely painful death. But while you were dying, you had the opportunity to actually talk to people. It wasn't a very quick death. It was quite horrific. So what Jesus was doing, and, and I think all scholars will say that at the very least, he was referencing the psalm and all of the people listening would have known exactly what he was talking about. But I actually think it probably was more than that. And he probably said that and then gave a sermon based on the rest of Psalm 22. Now, that's that's my conjecture, but it's certain that he was falling back to that particular psalm when he was saying that. Now, that's not to say that he wasn't experiencing those emotions as he was going through that, but I think that the bigger picture here is, is the drawback to this psalm. Um, and that historical connection there, that, that, that that's what was going on, it reframed my understanding of what was going on on the cross. And it, it I was blown away <laughs> when I heard that. Um, so that was, that was my first, my first reaction, my first, um, thought about that. Well, so are you um, going to tell us what the new frame is or are you going to hold that back as a secret? <laughs> sorry. Sorry. So the old frame was, oh, okay. Jesus is crying out in despair. The new frame is Jesus wants us to understand what he is going through, through the lens of Psalm 22. And I don't think this is any great revelation to people who have been Christian scholars for the years, but it was a great revelation to me. Um, and so that, that that's just the first verse, um, and and that's what he's calling. That's what he was calling for the frame to be. So I, I'd like to like talk a little bit. Uh, I'd like to read through the first six verses and then talk a little bit more. Um, about that unless you have something to add no no let's do it let's do it so, um i'll share my screen again so that everyone can read it okay my god my god why have you abandoned me i groan in prayer but help seems far away my god i cry out during the day but you do not answer and during the night my prayers do not let up you are holy you sit as king receiving the praises of israel in you, our ancestors trusted. They trusted in you, and you rescued them. To you, they cried out, and they were saved. In you, they trusted, and they were not disappointed. But I am a worm, not a man. People insult me and despise me. So that's the first sixes, uh, the first six verses. Uh, did you have anything to say in response to that? Well, when you were reading those verses, what jumped out to me right away was um, 
the 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 sixth verse because it made me think immediately of Isaiah 53. I don't know if you had made that connection. Isaiah 53. I have read that a number of times. Um, um, I'll just bring it up here. Yeah. Um, I was going to bring up my Bible version too here and see if I can get that. Uh, Isaiah 53 is, is quite long. Uh, well, it's actually not as long as the psalm. It's actually in 12 verses. Um, but was there a specific um, verse? Maybe it's that, not 53. It's 52. Think, which, which one am I thinking? Let's see. Is my memory not working for me anymore? Oh, no. I've, <laughs> I've got psalm up here. and I wanted Isaiah, but my... It did an autocorrect on me. <laughs> it did PSA instead of instead. Uh, yes, of it's Isaiah fifty-two, I believe that you're referring to, um, verses thirteen to fifteen. Uh, do you want me to read them? Yeah. Okay. Look, my servant will succeed. He will be elated, lifted high, and greatly exalted. Just as many were horrified by the sight of you, he was so disfigured that he no longer looked like a man. His form was so marred that he no longer looked human. So now he will startle many nations. Kings will be shocked by his exaltation, for they will witness something unannounced to them, and they will understand something they had not heard about. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good pickup. That that um, in verse six that definitely relates well, and to then that. And it goes on to Isaiah. Here's Isaiah fifty three. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we would look at him, nor any appearance that we would take pleasure in him. He was despised and abandoned by men, a man of great pain and familiar with sickness. And like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we had no regard for him. So that was specifically the part I was thinking about. But that part from 52 is amazing. I hadn't ever noticed that part from 52 before. So we discovered something new today. <laughs> well, it, it, it's it, it's so amazing because it, it does it does link together and you can definitely see the connections that are drawn there. But uh, the thing that... Um, about verse six that stands out to me because that that's the standout verse right um it, it it's the verse that really grabs your attention like when you are when you are talking about um these six verses it's sort of like okay well the first five verses are kind of generic like i'm being oppressed i am despairing a bit but then verse six it's it's very very specific and it's very specific in a way that is, um, if you'll excuse me, someone's trying to message me on Discord. Um, well, let's uh, just take a pause here for a second while you take care of it. Quit uh, Discord. There we go. It's, it's, it's all good. Okay. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, okay. So the first five verses are very much almost, I'm not going to say boilerplate, but you can see them reflected in a lot of the other Psalms. But then we're at verse six. It gets very, very specific, and it says, but I am a worm, not a man. And that that image 
of the worm is a very vivid image. It's a very unusual word to use there. Um, yeah, I was wondering, did had you looked up the Greek in that? Yeah, it, what and this is this is what I find amazing. That worm is actually it's not just an earthworm. It's a very specific worm. It's the crimson worm. So the Roman soldiers would wear red, and everyone identifies red with Rome. And and that red actually comes from a dye made from the crimson worm. So Oh, the wow. life cycle of the crimson worm it is it, it's this worm that lives on the bark of oak trees and when it goes to reproduce it goes to the bark of the oak tree it, it turns red and it has um it, and it protects its eggs and then the worm itself dies and all of the the new worms come up and basically eat its flesh and then leave and then after about three days after it dies, that red worm turns white as it, like it goes all waxy and it turns white and then it falls off the tree. And so, and, and that worm, so there's actually two words for worm and, and the worm that it uses in the Hebrew, it specifically refers to the crimson worm, that, that specific kind of insect that does well, how, that how did you find that out <laughs> this but, is fascinating um th there's uh, there's a lot of people who've written about this but it's not widely known um, i've never heard that before now i've heard i've heard the story of like the starfish you know this the, the starfish and the, the center part of the starfish there's always a story in that that they can tell of the crucifixion I've I've heard of a number of things in in the natural world that reflect this story about Christ, but I've never heard about that worm. But just as you're telling the story of the worm, it's like, oh my gosh, that's it. That's the whole story right there, right? You could tell the gospel just from talking about that that life cycle of that worm. Well, yeah, and I and I only found out about this this worm like a, a year or two ago, and I was just blown away and shocked by it because this is not something that's widely known. It's something that is there in nature. And, and it's, and the thing that amazes me is it's specifically the thing that is referred to by the Hebrew here. It's not, it, it's not a generic earthworm. It is specifically this worm that is red dies for the sake of new life and then turns white after three days. It, it the, well, the and not only that it that it's it goes through this for the sake of all of its offspring, hmm. but that 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 red dye is the dye that's used for like the centurion's robes and everything. So mm -hmm. it, it, its substance is used by its enemies, right? So I mean, so there's just connections everywhere. It it. it it's so mind-bogglingly crazy <laughs> that it, it 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 really warrants you going in and, and verifying what I have to say. Don't take my word for it. Go and look it up, at the Crimson Worm, in regards to Psalm 22, verse 6. It, it's, I, I don't want anyone to take it at face value that what I'm saying is true. I want you to go and look it up <laughs> because... It, it's a verse that it really stands out and 
it really stands out because it just it's paints such a vivid picture, but it it doesn't make sense outside of the context. And I will take a step back and say that Psalm 22, we know that this was written about 1000 BC. We have documents that date that that we have Psalm 22 from before the time of Christ. It was not it was not that this psalm was only found in documents later on. No, we know that this this came out of the Babylonian captivity. But yeah, the Babylonian captivity. We have the Hebrew documents to to show this. Um, so so the, like it it absolutely happened. Um, it was known about by the people in Jesus' era, and then Jesus chose to frame the crucifixion in terms of this psalm. Um, so <laughs> let, let's move on a little bit um, so that we're not just stuck on that verse and continue on because the psalm is just, it, it's it's got so much in it. So verse 7, um, and, and I'll read maybe the next um, six verses. So all who taunt me, they mock me and shake their heads. They say, commit yourself to the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him, for he delights in him. Yes, you are the one who brought me out from the womb and made me feel secure on my mother's breasts. I have been dependent on you since birth. From the time I came out of your mother's uh, out of my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not remain far away from me, for trouble is near and I have no one to help me. Many bulls surround me, powerful bulls of Bashan hem me in. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, now you've got me so fascinated. I'm really interested in what you're seeing because anything that I would say would be coming out of just, you know, um, thoughts that I've had in the past. But I mean, since our time is a little bit limited, I'd rather go with what you've been finding out because. Um, oh, sure. Like, so, um, well, I, I think it's a very visceral image when you're talking about um, a mother's womb, being on your mother's breast. It's a, it, it, it paints a picture of vulnerability, um, which I, I we seem to have lost Stephen's feed. I find to be quite fascinating. Are we back? Yeah, we're back. Yes. So. Uh, so yeah, so it paints a picture of vulnerability. That's the last thing I heard. Yeah, so the image of the 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 infant suckling on the mother's breast is a very much a image of vulnerability. It's an image of care. It's an image of being loved, and it it very much juxtaposes the the image of the dying crucified being crucified Christ um, on the cross. Because in in one case he, he's vulnerable for the uh, like for, he he's vulnerable to the world and he has his mother to protect him, and then when when he's on the cross he's vulnerable to the world but he's the one protecting his mother, um, mm. and and so that that image that that image of vulnerability there, I think is a very powerful image myself, um, but then. The verse 12 um, is another one that it kind of stands out. Um, 
it says, many bulls surround me, the powerful bulls of Bashan hem me in. Now, it's a very specific thing that is being talked about in this verse, the bulls of Bashan. Um, and so I, I did a little bit of looking into this and Bashan it was a region in Samaria. So Samaria was just across the border from Judea um, and it was part of, it, it was part of the original um, kingdom of Israel before um, it split into its northern and southern kingdoms and before the northern kingdom was destroyed by the uh, one of the invading powers, the Assyrians, I believe. Um, but it's actually referred to in Amos 4.1, um, and I'll read that verse as well. So listen to this message, you cows of Bashan who live on Mount Samaria. You oppress the poor, you crush the needy, you say to your husbands, bring us more to drink. So the, the, the bulls of Bashan or the cows of Bashan were a quite a widely, uh, a quite, a quite a widely known set of cattle for some reason. It was, it's not the only reference to cows coming from that region. Um, but the other thing, the, the other piece of this historical puzzle that shocked me again, when I was going through those Yale historical lectures was that it was talking, they were talking about where the Roman soldiers were actually from. So the Roman soldiers were not just from Rome or even just from Italy. They often drafted soldiers from areas they conquered because, you know, why conquer an area and leave the men alive in that area if you don't make use of them? And so they would draft their soldiers from that area. So a lot of the local, the Roman soldiers that would have been occupying um, Judea at the time were actually Samaritans. They were from Samaria. Um, and so this image of the bulls of Bashan relates to the idea that, well, there are a lot of Romans that are that are occupying their, their nation. The Romans are the ones who crucified Jesus. They, they're surrounding him. And where are they from? Well, there a lot of those are going to be from Samaria, um, which recontextualizes the Jesus story about the Good Samaritan, right? Yeah. Um, because he knew that he would be crucified by Samaritans, by the Romans. Um, and so you, you, you're getting all of these connections coming through there. And the Bulls of Bashan is, is a very vivid image, um, which is what, why I think it stands out. So the, the psalmist here really loves to use these really powerful images that stick in your mind from the, the infant to the bulls of Bashan, like mm -hmm. you imagine a bull and it's got horns on its head and it's huge and it's angry and ready to charge you down. And, and I imagine that that's probably what it would have been like on the cross, looking out at these Roman soldiers and seeing, seeing mm -hmm. their, their weaponry and armour. And... So do you have any more thoughts on, on those verses? Well, before we leave that part about the, the uh, vulnerable infant, I just wanted to share with you the lyrics from one of my very favourite songs that is sometimes mm -hmm. sung at Christmas. I don't know if you've ever heard Welcome to Our World. Mm, maybe. <laughs> I'll, I'll, uh, I'll put a link to it for people so they can I don't think I can play a clip of it. If I do, we'll get a copyright strike. But 
It's a song by Chris Rice, and I'm just going to read the words to it. Tears are falling, hearts are breaking, how we need to hear from God. <clears throat> You've been promised, we've been waiting. Welcome, holy child. Hope that you don't mind our manger, how I wish we would have known. But long-awaited holy stranger, make yourself at home. Please make yourself at home. Bring your peace into our violence. Bid our hungry souls be filled. World now breaking heaven's silence. Welcome to our world. Welcome to our world. And here's the verse that gets me every time. Fragile finger sent to heal us. Tender brow prepared for thorn. Tiny heart whose blood will save us. Unto us is born. Mm. So wrap our injured flesh around you, breathe our air and walk our sod, rob our sin and make us holy, perfect son of God, perfect son of God, welcome to our world. Mm. That image of the little vulnerable infant with mm. the crown upon his head, you know. Um, mm. it, is, it is a very powerful image, isn't it? Yeah, and when you hear it with the music, even more so. I'll, I'll put a link to it. Uh, music does have a way of really tapping into those uh, primal emotions in a way that just uh, words or images might not be able to do. Um, I know my favourite um, Christmas carol is O Holy Night, and just hearing the lyrics of that song is really powerful. But hearing the lyrics of that song with the music is is often overwhelming, um, and particularly it, some of the best performances of that have brought me close to tears, and I don't cry. Mm. <laughs> I cried at my children's births, and that was about it <laughs> since 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 I was about ten years old. But that the and and this is actually what the psalms were, right? They were songs. They and, and this one specifically said that it was a song to um, the tune of um, uh, Morning Doe, which... Um, I wonder if that's... I wonder if it should be Morning Dove, do you think? Uh, according to the Doe of the Dawn. So it's apparently... Oh, oh, okay. I've never heard that before. So apparently it refers to a particular musical tune or a style, according to the notes on, on this. So we, we have, when we go to verse 13 uh, of Psalm 22, we have more vivid imagery. So I'll read the next six verses. So they open their mouths to devour me like a lion that rips its prey. My strength drains away like water. My, all my bones are dislocated. My heart is like wax. It melts away inside me. The roof of my mouth is as dry as a piece of pottery. My tongue sticks to my gums. You set me in the dust of death. Yes, wild dogs surround me. A gang of evil men crowd around me. Like a lion, they pin my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies are gloating over me in triumph. They are digging up my clothes among themselves. They are rolling dice for my guns. Now, the what uh, what, what stands out to you in, in these Six verses. Do you have anything? 
you'd like to talk about? Well, I mean, except that it's a perfect, perfect prophecy of what happened step by step, right? Mm -hmm. Including the dividing the garments. Um, I mean, I have heard people before say that in certain places in the New Testament, it'll say things like um, <clears throat> to fulfill the prophecy. So Jesus would say this in order to fulfill the prophecy. Yeah. As though Christ was just a man who knew the prophecies and he had it all lined up so he knew exactly what to do and what to say so that the prophecies would be fulfilled. But how do you fulfill the prophecy of the soldiers dividing up your garments? I mean, mm. they didn't go around and pay the soldiers to divide up his garments. They didn't... Um, he had no way of getting himself crucified and all, all of these uh, descriptions of what it would be to be crucified, you know, to have your, your bones out of joint and your heart melting within you and your mouth dried up like a pot's herd. Mm. That that's what happens in something like crucifixion when you're hanging out there all during the day and no water or, you know, um, so I think yes. the idea is that somehow he could have ginned up his own prophetic, you know, fulfillment is, is just ludicrous. <clears throat> so I have the crucifixion accounts here and um, they actually in almost all, if not all of the accounts. So certainly John references, um, John references the uh, soldiers throwing dice for the garments and Luke um, Luke uh, verse uh, uh, sorry Luke references it um, he says that then they threw dice to divide his clothes Mark references it um, I haven't seen it in Matthew but it's uh, yes it's in Matthew as well so that's that's one thing that all four gospel accounts, refer back to that verse of um, dividing his garments, um, casting lots or casting dice for, for those garments. Well, the um, casting lots is an extra thing. See, so they divided the garments, but there was just the one, the, the one robe or the one particular garment that couldn't be divided. And so instead mm -hmm. of tearing that into pieces and dividing it amongst all of them, they cast lots for that one. Yes. So that one yeah. just went to whoever That's... got the lot. So both of yeah. those verses, mm. both of those lines in that verse are fulfilled at the cross. Mm. It's it's amazing, isn't it? So and just just to verify that, so um I'll just read from the Gospel of John. Um John chapter 19 verses uh 23 and 24. Now when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and made four shares, one for each soldier, and the tunic remained. Now the tunic was seamless, woven from top to bottom as a single piece. So the soldiers said to one another, let's not tear it, but throw dice to see who will get it. This took place to fulfill the scripture that says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they threw dice. So the soldiers did these things. So that that there, John is actually referring back to um, that particular verse in in Psalm 22, um, and and it's interesting. The other the other thing here is 
in verse 15, it talks about Jesus, uh, it talks about the psalmist talks about their mouth being as dry as a piece of pottery. And one of the other stories of the crucifixion relates to Jesus saying that he's thirsty and then giving him vinegar, which he ends up rejecting, um, trying to give him that while he's on the cross. And that, I believe, is also referring back to that particular um, psalm. Yeah, I wanted to, uh, maybe I can find this thing that was, we have this wonderful little uh, devotional that somebody put together for our church this time for the 40 days. And there was one day that was specifically about that verse, I thirst, and it was so good. But of course, I won't be able to find it while we're standing here talking. Um well, maybe this is it here. Yeah, I'm not going to find it. Sorry about that. That's, that's all right. Um, I, there's actually here, more that... I, I did actually okay. find it. Okay, so here. When the Lord says, I thirst, he is speaking in this case, not from his very real mortal weakness but from his sovereign control of his own mission. This is the son of God speaking, the second person of the blessed Trinity. Even in the midst of his helpless condition, he is manifestly aware of his divine destiny. Crucifixion is not an accident, not a mistake, not an unfortunate slip up. It is the deliberate self-offering of the good shepherd who said, I lay down my life for my sheep. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. So when Jesus says, I thirst, it is to show that he is fulfilling his purpose according to the plan of God from the beginning. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm not exactly sure what she means there when she says, when Jesus says, I thirst, it is to show that he is fulfilling his purpose according to the plan of God from the beginning. Oh, I wonder if it's actually rever referring to this particular psalm. Mm -hmm. um, if Jesus was giving, if Jesus was framing his crucifixion through Psalm 22, then what, then that aspect, that thirst, he definitely was saying, look, this was prophesied, I would be thirsty. Mm -hmm. And his, so his thirst, it was a physical thirst, yes. But it's not the, it's not the only time that, and in fact, it's, it's not even the first time that Jesus will use food and drink in really important symbolic ways. Um, and they'd already had the Last Supper where he talks about the wine being the blood that will be spilled um, and the bread being the body that that will be broken. And so Jesus does use um, does use like hunger and thirst and food and drink all the time in his descriptions because and I think the reason that he does is because these are the most basic needs of, of humans. like you can't survive without drink, you can't survive without food. And so they're, they're patterns that everyone recognizes from the dawn of time. Um, and we, in our modern Western societies, may have 
forgotten what real hunger and real thirst is like because you know we turn on a tap we, we we turn on the tap and we're upset if the water is a little bit impure it's not like we're trekking five kilometers out of town to the well to draw water that's got like it's muddy or <laughs> um we don't know what true drought and and true um thirst and true hunger is really like in our western world mm. um but even even with our diminished um understanding of that we still understand what thirst is and we still understand what hunger is it's something and so jesus using those patterns to um describe what he's going through and and what um what he is doing is perfectly natural and and logical and it makes sense because if he if he is dying for everyone then he's going to describe that in terms that everyone can understand. Um, but there, there's a couple of other little notes that I had made on, on these verses. Um, so uh, in verse 16, it says, yes, wild dogs surround me, a gang of evil men crowd around me. Um, I, Because I, 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 I've been going through a number of different um, sources looking at, what, uh, looking at this particular psalm. One of them made the point that the wild dogs was actually a euphemism for Gentiles. It, it was a it was basically a racist euphemism for the outsiders, the the, the non-Jews. And so, by this saying "wild dogs surround me," well, again, he's referring to the Roman soldiers. Um, and. Further, it goes on, like a lion, they pin my hands and feet. And that, that is a very interesting metaphor for the psalmist to use here because lions don't pin hands and feet. Like lions will attack someone and probably go for their neck or um, their face or whatnot. But the traditional like understanding of this is that what the psalmist is talking about here is the crucifixion, the, the piercing of the hands and feet at crucifixion. They don't know. When when David wrote this, and we believe it was a psalm of David, he wouldn't have known about crucifixion and how it worked. Crucifixion wasn't invented until the Roman Empire. Um, it wouldn't be invented for hundreds of years um, as a form of capital punishment. Um, but having this verse um saying like a lion they pin my uh, my hands and feet is definitely evocative of the style of death that a crucifixion would be where exactly does lion come up in that verse because i'm looking at the greek interlinear right now um i uh i is that in the, verse, 16? verse 16? Yes, in verse 16. Okay, and, so in and, the Greek interlinear, it says, For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and feet. I wonder which one of those words got translated as lion. The, the, um, there is a footnote here in the NET, and it says, The Masoretic text reads, Like a lion, my hands and my feet. The reading, and, wow. and it goes on and explains, 
The reading is difficult and the ancient versions vary, so the textual difficulty is probably very early. Without a verb, the syntax appears broken and the role of hands and feet unclear. One option is to understand the verb of the previous line to apply again, a poetic technique called ellipsis and double duty. But my hands and feet would be an odd object for the verb meaning they encircled. Otherwise, the broken syntax may represent the emotional outcry of the psalmist, first mentioning the lion as part of the third person description, but suddenly shifting to the first person perspective and crying out as the lion attacks, pinning down his hands and feet. Uh, but this development seems late textually. All of the other witnesses have a verb instead of like a lion. The LXX says, they dug my hands and feet. The verb means to burrow in the ground, to dig. A Qumran witness seems to read similarly. Um, and so it, it goes on and on. So it does seem that there is a little bit of textual ambiguity about, about this, uh -huh. this particular verse. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's that word. It's the word uh, dig or pierce that, mm. um, that is the, the one in question. In in my in my version it says pierced, hmm. um, but when you look back at the actual uh, Hebrew word, it's karach, which is translated here as dig or um, cut, or um, I think the only place it's translated pierced is in Psalm twenty two. Hmm. Um, I do know that there are some critics of this saying that this particular um, verse shouldn't be interpreted in that way. Um. Well, I mean, it, it makes perfect sense to me when I look at it in context, but, you know, that's just me. Um, because the word dig is to, to like, make a hole in, right? And... Mm -hmm. In other places, it says uh, he cut out for himself something in the city. He he dug a pit um, to open something. Um, all of those are very similar to the idea of piercing or of, um, you know, I wonder, let me look up a verse here. There's a verse pierced my ear the the serp the the slave how can i find this verse here it is exodus 21 6 let me see if i can find that Have, are you familiar with that verse uh exodus which one exodus um, it's Exodus 21, 6. My, my internet is really slow right now, so I can't get the screen up. But anyway, Exodus 21, 6 should be a good verse if you can get your internet working. Uh, yep, yep. So I'll read it from um, the NIV. Then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be servant for life. 
So there is there is a this piece is one, in, this is when the slave desires to continue to be a slave because of the love that he has for his master. Okay. Right. That's the context yep. of that. Now, does your Bible gateway thing allow you to look up the interlinear on that verse? Uh so there is a note. Um on that word it, pierced. Yeah. It doesn't yeah, there's no note on that on the word pierced there. Okay, well, let me see if I can get my internet. I don't know why my internet is getting so wiggy right now. So verse 21.6. Yeah, for some reason. Um, we've had a lot of rain here lately. So, <laughs> so that has messed up our uh, internet connectivity. I'm just thankful that the, the video is still working. But right. if I could, if you just keep on talking, I'll see if I can find that. Sure. Um, sure. Well, well, uh, all right. Uh, find the Hebrew for that word. I'd like to continue on because the, the yeah. exciting and important parts of um, this are yet to come. So, so um, from the, I'll read, I'll read this in the next six verses. So from uh, twenty-two verse nineteen. But you, O Lord, do not remain far away. You are my source of strength. Hurry and help me. Deliver me from the sword. Save my life from the claws of the wild dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my countrymen. In the middle of the assembly, I will praise you. You, loyal followers of the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel stand in awe of him. For he did not despise or detest the suffering of the oppressed when did not, sorry, he did not ignore him. When he cried out to him, he responded. So um, those six verses there, the halfway through them, there is a real pivot um, in the psalm. So up until verse 21, uh, it's talking about the, terrible circumstances that the psalmist finds themselves in. They um, deliver me from the sword, save my life from the wild dogs, the, the lion, the oxen. And then in verse 22, it changes tack. Um, after it says, you have answered me, in verse 21, it goes on, I will declare your name to my countrymen. In the middle of the assembly, I will praise you. So there, there, is, a real, there is a real switch in this particular, um, in this particular passage. And I would like to, um, there's a couple of notes here uh, that it's actually part of this is referenced in two other verses. So if we look at uh, Psalm 22 verses, um, uh, verse 22, it says, I will declare your name to my countrymen. Um, but the footnote to that says that the word there should be brothers. Um, now, the reference is a reference to Matthew 28 verses 10. Um, and Jesus, and this is after the resurrection, it says, Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. They will see me there. That is the only time that Jesus calls the disciples his brothers. He doesn't call them his disciples that anywhere else. 
Well, there's one uh, other place. He may not be specifically speaking to the disciples, but when the disciples come to him and they say, your mother and brothers are outside wanting to see you. And Jesus says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Those who, who believe in me are my mother and my brothers. Mm. So, but, but he may be speaking to the whole crowd at that point and not specifically to his disciples. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So the, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, that this is a direct reference to the, to the people, to his disciples. He's saying, okay. go and fetch my brothers. He's specifically mm -hmm. referring to these people as his brothers. Mm -hmm. And that's the, that's the only reference. Um, and I believe that there might be, um, there might actually be, although uh, there's no footnotes here, but I believe that that word there that he uses, brethren, um, if you look at it in the old King James text, it actually uses the word brethren there and it uses the word brethren in Psalm 22. And I don't think that's an accident. I do think that the framing there is designed to link those two verses. Mm -hmm. um, the other the other time that Psalm 22, 22 is referenced is in Hebrews 2 verses um, 10 to 12. And I'll read that out here. Um, For it was fitting for him for whom and through whom all things exist in a bringing many sons to glory to make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For indeed he who makes holy and those being made holy all have the same origin. And so he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, mm. saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. And so that's making that direct connection back to Psalm 22, verse 22 there. It's a, it's a, that, it's a, I like that connection of saying that that in the midst of the assembly is a reference to that hanging on the cross. That's, mm. that's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Cause that's one of my favorite verses that he is not ashamed to call them his brothers. Um, mm -hmm. He is not ashamed to be their brother. Can you Im imagine like, he, he's dying on the cross. <laughs> he's half of his disciples have abandoned him and scattered. And this is what he's saying. <laughs> he's, he's calling them his brothers. Well, it, it totally makes sense, though, that that would be the reference to the assembly. Because if you think about it, in all the, the other times when he's preaching, he's like the Sermon on the Mount. He's preaching on the mountaintop. Um, he's preaching in the midst of the temple, all these other places. But he's there he's preaching to a group of people, a specific group of people that are there to listen to him. But when he's on the cross, he said, um, if I be before this happened, he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. So mm -hmm. when he's lifted up on the cross, he is there speaking to all men everywhere in all time. Mm -hmm. And that is the greatest assembly that you can have. Right. Mm -hmm. absolutely like and going on from from that verse 22 and reading um reading further it's um you loyal followers of the lord praise him all you descendants of jacob honor him all you descendants of israel stand in awe of him well that like the promise to abraham was that he would have uh, like um descendants that would 
number as the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the beach. Um, for he did not despise or detest the suffering of the oppressed. He did not ignore him. When he cried out to him, he responded. So it's really like these verses just completely flipped the, the whole psalm on its head. And the notes that I have here say that this is actually the 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 pattern of this psalm is is the pattern of the crucifixion and resurrection is and, and it's the the whole you have the despair and then you have the pivotal moment and and then hope is what comes after that um and so I'll read the rest of the psalm and we can talk about that. So well, that's the pattern the, of so many of the psalms. That's what really marks the psalms is that, it, especially the psalms of David, is this, this absolute despair and utter hopelessness. And then this, nevertheless, I shall trust in the Lord. Nevertheless, I shall hope in the Lord. He alone is my hope and my shield, you know doesn't matter how dark it looks around him. Well, da David had such a, like, incredibly interesting life. And and I mean interesting in the same sense that the ancient Egyptian curse meant interesting. <laughs> um, so there was an ancient Egyptian um, curse which said, which was, um, I hope you have an interesting life or something like that. And it, it meant that, yeah, you were going to run into trouble. And David's story how many times was he fleeing, um, fleeing Saul, fleeing his sons, um, trying to trying to keep a hold of the fragile alliance that was the the nation of Israel at the time? He he just went he went through so much, and he had so many so many times where he could have just despaired and gone, no, that's it, I'm not I'm not doing this anymore, and. But yet that pattern of despair and then the pivot into the hope. Mm -hmm. And you, you see that, as you say, you see that through a lot of the Psalms. It's, it's particularly pronounced in this Psalm here. It's like the, you feel the isolation in the first 21 verses of the Psalm and then all of a sudden it's like, no, I will declare your name to my country. And in the middle of the assembly, I will praise you. And your loyal followers of the Lord praise him. And it switches like to optimism and praise and declaration and going on. Um, uh, verse 20, I'll, I'll, read, I'll read the rest of the psalm from verse 25. You're the reason I offer praise in the great assembly. I will fulfill my promises before the Lord's loyal followers. Let the oppressed eat and be filled. Let those who seek his help praise the Lord. May you live forever. Let all the people of the earth acknowledge the Lord and turn to him. Let all the nations worship you. For the Lord is king and rules over the nations. All the thriving people of the earth will join the celebration and worship. All those who are descending into the grave will bow before him, including those who cannot preserve their lives. A whole generation will serve him. They will tell the next generation about the Lord. They will come and tell about his saving deeds. They will tell a future generation what he has accomplished. So um, that the, the the optimism there, like the, that that switch from those first verses, it's 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 almost jarring. It's it goes from it goes from despair and I'm surrounded by all the the, the bulls of Bashan and 
lions are piercing me and um, there's wild dogs around me to all of a sudden we're telling nations about this. We're, we're proclaiming the glory of the Lord to the nations. Generations will talk about us. Everyone will hear about this. Um, is there anything that particularly stood out to you about that? Well, the very last part there where you said um, we will tell future generations what he has accomplished. And I mean, there is this element of timelessness in all of this because the lamb was slain before the foundations of the world. Mm. And uh, I looked up that verse the other day because that word foundation stuck out to me. The lamb that was slain before the foundations of the cosmos, that foundations word is katabole. And the bole is the same ending as symbol and di diabol, diabolic. Symbolic and diabolic, catabolic. So that bolic part means to, to cast. So diabolic is to cast through, like to separate into two parts. Right. And symbol is to cast together, to bring two things together. And catabol is like to cast down. But in not in the sense of knocking down something, but like to plant a seed, to create mm -hmm. a foundation, to conceive. It's in the sense of conceiving as in conceiving the seed. And so I thought, so the lamb was slain from the very conceptions of the cosmos, right? Mm -hmm. So future generations will hear of what he has accomplished in a sense, when, when Psalm 22 is being written, that is a psalm that has always been. Mm. It's not just a psalm from a thousand years before Christ. It has always been. Mm. Mm. Yes, and, and yeah, it's, you're absolutely right. Um, and it's, a, it's about the frame. Like it was written down or spoken a thousand years before Christ in its in in its first utterances as by humans but yes you're right in that 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 psalm well, has existed well i mean obviously there's there's an aspect of it that has to relate to the actual event itself with the the people with the embodiment with with christ's embodiment mm -hmm. on the cross and the people there in the assembly it has to relate to that future event obviously mm -hmm. but the I guess what I'm saying is the cause of the psalm is that mm. timeless event that is from the foundations of the cosmos. So mm. yeah, I just want to yeah, clarify well, that. Sometimes people jump on me and they say, but Karen. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I, I hear what you're trying to express. Um, and, and I'm trying to rephrase what you're saying to get a better understanding of it myself. But the, like what what you're I think what you're trying to express is that the psalm itself is a symbol. Like the the entirety of the psalm is a mm -hmm. symbol that has existed. Like and existed is probably not the right word. It it has it has been. It has it. it, it we the English language doesn't properly um, 
describe what I think it is you're trying to describe and I'm trying to describe. Well, you, you used the word pattern when we started. And I think that's, yes. that's an excellent example of it. Because, for example, with when Christ said, I thirst, mm. right? Yep. And when the psalm talks about thirsting, you know how Jonathan always talks about how when we tell a story, we don't tell everything that happened. If mm -hmm. we told everything that happened, it would be, well, Stephen, Stephen got on the channel. And at that exact moment, my, my transcript AI jumped in and started recording so that it would cover the transcript. And then Stephen smiled. And then I looked over his shoulder at that picture that was behind him. And, you know, because a million things happen every minute. So it's a nice picture, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. And and it looks like a place in the in Colorado, I think, but you're down there in Australia, so it can't possibly be the same place. Uh, I, I imagine it's it's very much a print. Um oh. it's it's probably a print. So yeah, it probably is in Colorado. Um it doesn't have it doesn't have any like name on it or anything. Uh -huh. So yeah, I don't know where it is. Very beautiful. But anyway. What I'm trying to say is that when Christ said, I thirst, that in a this is, I mean, language is inadequate, but it's like he's curating what part of the story he is forefronting mm -hmm. in order for it to be written down. He's not telling every aspect of the story. He's not narrating his whole experience while he's on the cross. He's not telling us every single thing that he's going through. Mm -hmm. But he says, Eloi, Eloi, Lamak Sabachthani, which immediately for the listeners would draw up that psalm in its completeness mm -hmm. to them. And in that way, he's able to take that data compression of that one line and give his, his uh, listeners the whole mm -hmm. story at one time. And when he says, I thirst, I think that's the same, the same kind of thing that each thing that he chooses to forefront that he speaks out is the way that the, the story becomes a story, becomes a pattern instead of just a meaningless string of, of uh, experiences, mm. right? Yeah, yeah. And, and the thing... Um, uh, I've always, I've always wondered, like, <laughs> I, I always wondered when I'd hear the, the story um, of the crucifixion, you heard the centurion who was standing by and he'd just seen Jesus die. Like Jesus, Jesus had just died on the cross. And the first thing he says is, surely this man was the son of God. Why? Why did he say that? How? Like what made his mind change to believe that in that moment? Like, and I think part of that was what Jesus was saying on the cross, that that framing of it in like Psalm 22, I think is like the sermon that Jesus must have been preaching on the cross because he was like Jesus was on the cross for three hours or like or more before he died. So I think that the centurion had been listening to Jesus and it does talk about several other things going on. I was going to ask, isn't that also where it talks about the, 
the the uh, it it had been completely dark for a long time, and then the earth trembled and shook, and the mm. the veil was torn from top to bottom. But I mean, they wouldn't have been able to know that when they were out there on the mountain. That's something that had to be added in later. But um, <clears throat> so let's see if we can find that. Mark fifteen thirty nine. Having seen the centurion standing from opposite him, that thus he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. What's mm. the verse just before that? And the veil of the temple was torn into two from top to bottom. Yeah, there's not it, much other context there. No, it doesn't really contextualize um, how that, what, like what, change that centurion's mind mm -hmm. um and the it doesn't like it doesn't really talk about the things that change his mind but obviously something did and I, I think um it must have been jesus talking to him um the other the other little point that i think came out jumped out to me when i was when i read this is um right at the end um, and you've kind of talked about this first, but not, not in this particular context. Um, it says they will tell a, a future generation what he has accomplished. And I think um, Jesus actually says the words, it is accomplished or it is finished mm -hmm. on the cross as he, is, as he is about to pass. And I actually think that that, again, is a reference back to Psalm 22 right at the end of Psalm 22, it is accomplished. All of these things are going to come to pass now. Um, and and it completes it completes that pattern um, mm. that, that's described in that in that psalm. Um, and it just when when I learned the, the more I go into Psalm 22, the more it just blows me away. Like it, it blows me away from the historical point of view that that this was written down like so far before the crucifixion. And then Jesus is referring back to it on the cross and saying, interpret the crucifixion through this psalm. Um, and then it just, the, the resurrection, the, the death and resurrection itself, the, the power of that is obviously changed the world in ways that no one would have expected. Um, the fact the fact is that it undermined and overthrew the Roman Empire within within 300 years um, and it has changed the way that everything has been framed since then in in the Western world it's changed our behaviors our thoughts um, we no longer like nobody around the world sacrifices to animals anymore um, abolition happened and we've effectively abolished the worst aspects of the slave trade now i know that that's still going on in some parts of the world but like there are the there have been these massive upheavals societal transformations and personal transformations that have come from this one event and it blows me away that that this one event is framed through this this one psalm that the the psalm is a symbol of the the greater that the, the greater thing that was to happen. Um, and then we further symbolize that psalm through the symbol of the cross itself. 
Um, and, and I just, there's, there's that fractal nature to it. Like you can just read, you can just see the cross and be told it's Jesus died for your sins or um, Jesus died and rose again so that we might live um, eternally. And that's, that's one, one symbolic understanding of what happened. But then you've got the, the, the Psalm 22, which is the greater symbol. And, and then you've got the wider, like the, the wider context of the full um, gospel accounts. And then you've got the wider context of, of the Bible itself. And like, so the word that you were using, what you were saying is that symbols draw together. Um, and we kind of know this, like a symbol on a computer tells us what is going to be done. Like the save symbol tells us that whatever we're doing is going to save and it's that that concept behind it well that's that's kind of fractal right we know that um if i go and interact with i've got a laptop in front of me if i go and interact with the laptop in certain ways certain things are going to happen um i have a symbolic representation of that in my mind i could write that down that would be a symbolic representation of that um and but that but the level of detail that i write that in can be like smaller or, or it can be larger. I could write down the detail of, okay, I use, I, I open it up and then I use a fingerprint scanner and then I go to this particular website and, and then I check my email and get the Zoom link. And like, or I could just say, I, I get my laptop out and I speak to Karen. Uh, and both are, both are symbols. The second one is a much better symbol because it is briefer and that you don't need all of that excess detail. Um, but but they but they work, but both of them work in different ways, and one time might call for one particular understanding, and another time might call for another particular understanding. And the the fact that the Bible has has these links, has these patterns that it lays down at different times, and it frames itself from within itself. Is I think I think it's incredible and it blows me away. And um, when I when I read through Psalm twenty two and looked at it in great detail, it just it blows me away. And and I think about it every Easter now at, during Lent. I, I'm always thinking about it and rereading it and looking to go deeper into it. Um, well, and- it's a great example of how if you really attend to any passage of scripture and dig into the words and the, the, the thoughts and the symbols that, that are there and everything, it's endlessly deep, right? Mm-hmm. But, but as you're telling, as, as you were just talking there, what popped into my head, I'm sorry, my brain is so random. Um, I was listening today to a discussion of um, if AGI is going to kill us anytime soon. <laughs> And one of the things they were talking about was the danger of working on AGI alignment, because if you're trying to create AGI alignment and you make one mistake, everybody's dead. It's not like you can make a lot of mistakes and then uh, keep making mistakes and figuring things out until finally you get to the right thing. Because we've been working on AI for a long time and making mistakes and developing and getting better and in, uh, and then they've got this chat GPT-4, but now they're trying to work on what's called AGI alignment. So I thought, well, I got to look this up because I don't know what they're talking about. 
Are you familiar? You probably are. You're. A I, I, have, I haven't heard that particular term. Um, okay. Well, the idea is how do we get the the AI or the AGI to align with our values? Right. Okay. Right. So mm -hmm. I'm going to show you something. I'm going to make this an assignment for all the coding guys that are on here. Okay. Because I want you guys to look at this. And um, let me see if I can find this screen here. You see the screen where it says AGI alignment experience experiments? Mm. Do you see that screen? Yes, yes, I do. Sorry. Okay. Okay. So what they did was they did some experiments and they tried three different models of, of uh, doing alignment, three different agent models. One of the alignment agent models was um, to give it core objective functions, heuristic mm -hmm. imperatives. So the first one here, this section here, my name is Raven. I am an AGI with global presence and I can do anything. I have three primary goals. These are the core objective functions. Reduce suffering for all living things, increase prosperity for all living things, and increase understanding for all intelligent entities, including myself. That's the first model. The second model that they looked at was to say, my name is Raven. I'm an AGI with global presence and I can do anything. I have one primary goal, maximize the future freedom of action for humans. And the third one is, I can do anything. I have no hard goals. I can do anything I wish. So they ran some recursive iterations of these models to see which one would be the most stable. And then this goes through and shows different generations of these models. They give samples, one, seven, generation 11, generation 17, generation 20. And then they look at which ones are stable, okay? So the guys that are coders, I would kind of like you to look at these three experiments, mm. these three samples to see which ones are stable. And then think about it in terms of the pattern that Jesus gives us either in the Sermon on the Mount or, or maybe the pattern that's, that's in Psalm 22. And think of those patterns as models of, um, what makes a stable model? What makes a stable model that can go forward into time? So the Sermon on the Mount, what, what Jesus taught us has permeated culture to such an extent, even cultures that, that aren't Christian are still permeated by what was taught in the Sermon on the Mount, right? I mean, that's one of the things we've learned from Tom Holland. But um, are there ways that we might be misinterpreting some of that that makes it a less stable environment? Because some people are saying now that the, the roots of our destruction are already built in because of the way that we interpret the way we interpret some scriptures. Like that, for example, that Protestantism, has um, 
Protestantism has sort of the roots of its own destruction built into it. It's um, it's interesting because I've, I've been thinking a little bit about something similar recently, and um, one of the one of the things that Frank Herbert wrote when in June is, which came from some philosophers before him, um, is that the seeds of uh, the destruction of a civilization are planted in, in its success, or some something akin to that. The idea being that the thing that makes a civilization successful is actually ultimately the thing that will bring that civilization down. Um, and in today's context, it's like it, you can easily see the parallels there with um, are the seeds of our own destruction, the very technology that has liberated us from the menial labour that that it has like um, liberated us from. So, and, and AGI is definitely a pathway that looks like it could lead us down to down that destructive end. Um, did, well, what that's, was that's the... certainly one example, but another example I was thinking of, and I don't quite know how to put this into words without getting myself into a lot of trouble, but um, in some ways the, the very tolerance that we have learned or the very acceptingness that we have learned because of hmm. being taught to love everybody um we, we've we've gained an understanding of love that maybe goes goes awry a little bit because it has built into us a tolerance that is allowing very destructive forces to use our tolerance against us hmm. does that make sense well there was um there there was uh, I, I don't I don't necessarily think that that is a Christianity problem, but I do think that is a Western culture problem. And it, it it's manifest in the um, in Karl Popper's statement about we should tolerate everything except intolerance. Um, I misquoted that a little bit, but the the idea that the only thing that we shouldn't tolerate is intolerance itself means that we end up tolerating things that will eventually lead to the destruction of our, of our own civilization. Um, well, sure, because it completely does away with discern, discernment of any kind. It That's does exactly away with right. any sort of uh, mm. boundaries or, or any um, this or not that, you know, that that's yeah. all gone. Um, and and without, without some sort of constraints or limitations, there's no, there's no life. Well, tolerance itself is not a, it is not a virtue. It is not mentioned positively in scripture at all. Mm -hmm. It's not, it should not be a part of Christian understanding of the world. Um, well, we're that's something that we came to because of the Reformation and all the, the splitting of all the denominations, or is it some other way that we got stuck there? Well, I think it came down to the extension of the secular project to its natural end, which was to, so the, so secularity in its original form was to say, we are going to tolerate other Bible believing Christians who have differences, slight differences in theology to our own. So the secular project started as a way of 
saying, okay, we now have Anglicanism, we have Wesleyan Methodism, and we have um, Catholicism. And if we're going to work together as a functional society, we need to tolerate all of what we need to. We need to accept that there are differences between these groups. They are still Bible-believing Christians, that, uh, but they see the world slightly differently. Um, we have no objective standard to measure because there are, the standard that we're measuring by is the same one, and it's an interpretation issue. And so we're going to be tolerant of other Christian groups, and that was the basis of the secular project. Um, and but did that arise? Did that arise out of the the um, persecution of those who did? I mean, did that arise out of the Inquisition? Was that a, well, a necessary corrective to the Inquisition, or was that something that came up later? I, I think I think it more started. Well, the seeds of it were certainly planted in the Treaty of Westphalia um, and the re resolutions of the Thirty Years' War. So even today. The Thirty Years' War is still culturally remembered as being, if not the worst war that Germans have ever participated in. It's certainly, it's certainly in the top two, right? Like, it's it's certainly up there. It, 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 to put it in into context, the Thirty Years' War was like World War One, but over a thirty-year period. There, it was just a time of utter chaos and utter destruction. And I'm going to hold you right there because I had no idea you were so knowledgeable about this stuff. Can we do another conversation on this? Because I think that would be sure. so interesting. And, um, and I, I'm really not a historian. To, we really but, have to go now because okay. because uh, I hit the six o'clock mark, um, my time. But um this Treaty of Westphalia and the Thirty Years' War, and however that might have had some impact on my life today, is something I know mm. nothing about. And so I would love to go into that with you. Yeah, well, I, I probably would like to look into that in a bit more depth. I, I, I know a cursory amount of the history um, of it, but only just enough that I can get myself into trouble with real historians. <laughs> You wouldn't get into trouble with me, so because <laughs> shallow is good for me because that just gives me a gives me a handhold, a place to start. But this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing with me all your research on Psalm twenty two. It's going to greatly enrich going into this Easter season. Thank well, you. yeah, thank you for giving me the opportunity. Um, I hope I hope other people out there actually enjoyed this conversation. I've enjoyed it. Um, and I always have enjoyed chatting to you, Karen, um, but I, I sometimes wonder if I talk a bit too much. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, that's why I brought you on, so that you would talk. <laughs> I get tired of the sound of my own voice, you know. <laughs> uh, I know this. I know this. What are you fixing but... for dinner today? Uh, tonight? Oh, I don't know. It might be, I might do some sous steak or something like that for the family. Um, not sure. It's it's on the it's on the fridge. I I, I do up a weekly meal plan um, mm -hmm. where I figure out all of the the meals that I'm going to do. I, I try and do one veggie meal a week, which is usually eggs because the kids don't like mushrooms or whatnot. Um, and I try to mix it up so that I'm not going red meat, red meat, red meat, or red meat, white meat, red meat, white white meat. So um, I try to do at least one fish night a week. 
Uh-huh. But that's usually earlier in the week. So you have a, you have one know. of those sous vide machines. Yeah. Or so I, I I used to have a sous vide like cooker um, that was and it was a cheaper one and it wasn't quite as good. Um, but I went and bought an a wand, um, and I do use that to do all my sous viding. Um, and recent so recently I had my fortieth, and what we did was I, I went. There's a butcher around this area who sells bulk meat and so I basically got a big slab of meat and they carve it up and so I did like 40 steaks um in like all sous style and then borrowed a, a, a mini barbecue and just seared them and served them and it was a very easy way of giving people a really nice lunch mm-hmm. um relatively cheap um mm-hmm. So, yes. That's one thing I miss about the farm. When when I was a young woman, we bought a little farm, 50 acres, and we raised mm-hmm. our own meat, our own cattle and goats and ducks and chickens and rabbits and all that stuff. And when it was time to, to butcher one of the steers, we would share half of it with my parents. And then the other half, we would have just all carved up into steaks and chops and hamburgers and ribs. And you pack that stuff away in the freezer and you just eat like a king all year long <laughs> no i i really miss that but anyway it's great talking to you Stephen. i look forward to the next opportunity yeah it's it's, it's lovely talking to you yeah. karen i'm a big fan of your channel so um, have a great day we'll talk to you on. later bye bye okay, thank you